You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi. Welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Coast to Coast. I am your host, Rick Franzi, and this business talk show airs live on Thursdays here on octalkradio.net. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Commerce National Bank, Succession Strategies, Smart Business Magazine, and our newest sponsor to the show, Smart Stop Self Storage. I actually heard a commercial for them earlier today here on the radio station. And whenever you hear that commercial, if you're listening and you contact them, let them know that you heard it on octalkradio.net and Critical Mass Coast to Coast. We have three guests today on the program, all hailing from the greater Philadelphia area. So without further ado, let's get started with Manny Trujillo of Swain Techs. Manny, welcome to Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. Tell us about, tell us about your firm, Manny. Yes, yeah, so Swain Techs is a regional cloud computing, cybersecurity, um, program management solution a provider working for the Navy, Department of Human Health Care, and in the private sector for companies looking for full IT outsourcing solutions. And how did the firm get started? What's the, what's the inspiration? What's the background a little bit on the firm? Yeah, the company is around, uh, now going to 14 years. I acquired the company three years ago. Um, I used to be with Motorola for 14 years. And my last role was global product management, managing a line product line from forty million to four hundred million dollars in four year. But I want to get back to entrepreneurship, so I did the acquisition, kind of bid my house, my car, and everything, and acquired the company. And now it has been three years. We finally doubled revenue last year, and looking forward to continue doubling. Our inspiration is to serve our clients, help them achieve their goals. And by complementing their needs, and become a true, a trusted partner and a preferred partner for them. Well, welcome to the life of being an entrepreneur, huh? <laughs> Having to mortgage everything you own to get your business going, and hopefully, in the long run, it's a wise decision on your part, Manny. I'm very excited. It's a roller coaster, but I love every day. So, tell me a little bit about your kind of guiding principle. That's what we call it here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. What what I mean by that is, you know, what's your overarching belief system? What are you using to guide you in making decisions as you're growing your firm? That's great, yes. We, we do have a strategic map. We follow principles of the Rockefeller and the overall strategic map using kind of Jim Collins and good to great type books. So our key foundation is, is, is our vision, our mission, and our values, and we truly mean that. And our core values is first our client, uh, make sure we delight them every day and we earn their business every day. Second is our people because we are in the people business. So uh, make them, enable them, give them the tools to be uh, professional, to be able to be capable, and at the same time uh, help them uh, grow personally and be flexible to get a work balance. And that combined with integrity and social responsibility, those are our core driving values. And what I mean, social uh, responsibility, we, we cannot help a uh, United Way and the Fisher House. And work balance is when, if possible, we, we are very flexible with our team to work uh, remote, virtually, with technology. So that combination of client, our people, integrity, and balance of social responsibility is, is kind of our key drivers. Our vision is to become the preferred partner when a client has a need. We want them, our aspiration, that they always think first of swing techs. 
and our kind of mission is quality driven. We are becoming ISO 9001. We follow a lot of process. I'm very very flexible, very personal to make sure the client focusing their core business and we enable them to achieve that through technology solutions that we provide. Well, you've obviously spent uh, time thinking about the strategy part of your business and you reference some pretty well-known and thought leaders, if you will, for small and mid-market companies. So I, you're to be commended, uh, Manny, I think, for spending the time to plan the work before you begin to do the work. So I hope it continues to pay dividends for you as you grow your firm. I appreciate it. No, it's, it's, it's very important. These are great tools. It worked for big corporations. It worked for small companies. It worked while I was in Motorola, and it's working for us. That planning, also being advised by we have senior team. We, we hire the ex-CIO Department of Transportation. We have very senior people in the federal government, the highest-ranking civilian people working for us as advisors in a kind of our strategic board and also helping us to win business. And uh, following this principle, investing 5 10% of my time in strategic planning is really helping us big time to have a clear vision, give guidance to our team. The clients respect that. They value that value proposition, that focus. And it, it, it does help to provide a good value solution and have the team encouraged and kind of motivated with the, with the goals in mind. So let's turn your uh, focus a little bit. Let's talk about a current challenge facing the firm and what you and your managers are doing to mitigate that challenge. That's great. When we are in a kind of uh, after two years, finally I was able to put the company in a double and doubling growth. Last year we did. This year I think we have a good chance to double. So the challenge is always hiring the right people, the right talent, onboarding them and get them engaged, motivated, and focused. So building that pipeline of talent is a, is a bottleneck for us. It's an opportunity for us to continue improving to make sure we don't lose sight of our kind of values, vision, and mission to, to delight the client and help our internal people grow. So that's always a challenge. People part of the equation can be some of the most uh, demanding areas for business leaders to really understand and be able to, as you scale, you really bring in complexity into the business by adding more people and maybe getting them. You said you, you believe in remote working, and, and that's great. That's a great employee benefit, and it's a good culture. But from a leader's perspective, it raises the bar, in my experience, in creating a culture that even lends itself to people who don't come into a physical brick-and-mortar facility very frequently. Exactly right. So communication with them is, is very important. Developing, we are implementing our quarterly performance review just to make sure there is clear communication between the management team and each employee. Uh, the constant communication, trying to be as open as, as we can of what's going on, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the challenges. Make sure it's a trusted relationship. They know we're all together. It's like a tribe, kind of a culture that we're building, kind of family tribe. Uh, to make sure we, it's all for us. We do good. Everybody's good. Everybody wins. If we fail, everybody goes down the, down the road. So building that culture is, is all of a challenge, but at the same time, it's very exciting. It's very exciting to bring people, give them opportunities to grow. And if we all grow, you know, everybody wins. So that's, that's what it's all about. So let's talk about the future. You've had impressive growth. You're planning for additional growth this year. What's the future hold for your firm? What's it going to be like when we have you back on Critical Mass Coast to Coast in the future? And you're talking about a different company. How do you see that? Where do you see the growing opportunities That's or business great. opportunities? Yeah, we have a, a strategic map uh, plan for the next five years. We call the Mega Plan. Uh, we have mapped it up per year. Uh, right now, we're close to the two million dollar revenue. Our aspiration is to become 
30 million dollar revenue in the next five years it's very ambitious very straight so we plan to double for the next couple of years and then slow down to 50 percent growth but we're still too small so statistics are in our favor so double revenue when you're small is easy when you start growing it's becoming more painful more difficult and the goal is to be 50 percent federal government uh, within the federal government diversifying department of defense and civilian agencies and in the other 50 percent is for you that is uh, at the 14500 we are kind of making some inroads there and 10 percent the small side business that's what i acquire and we want to continue growing that sector because it provides a very loyal base so it's a diversified portfolio with our solution mainly in cybersecurity, cloud computing overall it solutions and program management so that's kind of the aspiration always delivering integrity value innovation and flexibility to our clients to make sure we we, we don't lose sight of our core values. You're two million today. You want to be thirty million in five years. Do you think there would be any chance of realizing that goal if you didn't spend the time on the strategy and um, the planning that you're doing to get you to that goal? Zero. There will be no chance. You don't have a map. I always like to have a personal level, professionally. Always like to have a plan at twenty years. And I've been very lucky. I have made a good chunk. I, I did put some score to improve in golf. I did fail miserable in golf. But other than that, uh, professionally, it's very important that what helped us in Motorola. When we had a plan in Motorola, we globally, we focused only 50 out of 1,500 telcos we could chase, and we beat win and we beat Cisco because we have a good strategic plan. Uh, here the same. I know 30 million is very aggressive. We may end up probably in half of that or whatever we end up, that's okay, or 5 million or whatever is the number, but at least we try. And that, what makes it exciting, exciting is know where you want to go, try, you fail, just learn from the failure and move on. So we don't mind if we just end up $2 million company in five years. At least we try to be a 30 million. If we don't, we learn from it. The key point is learn from it and enjoy the ride. Of course, it's a roller coaster. You have your ups, you have your downs, but if it's yours, so you have to enjoy every every single day. That's so true. If someone would like to learn more about your firm, how do they find you online? Yeah, they can find us at www.swintex.com, and Swintex is S-W-A-I-N-T as a telephone, E-C-H-L.com, swintex.com. Well, it's impressive to hear you talk about the strategic plan and a little bit about your firm's growth and sort of what you do. I want to thank Ken Wax, our Renaissance Executive Forums business owner in Philadelphia, for suggesting you as a guest here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Thanks for being a friend of the program, and welcome to our community of business leaders across the country. Thank you for the opportunity. Nice talking to you. Bye, Manny. Bye-bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, interesting business owner, interesting newly minted entrepreneur, great success in the business. I'm so glad that he was our first guest here on the program today. We have our second guest, uh, Chris Molyneux who is going to be joining us. My engineer gave me the thumbs up. He is ready to go. So we're going to take our first commercial break, and then we're going to come back and meet Chris. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire? or try and pass that business on to your children. At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely 
and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com I got stuff to the right, more stuff to the left Got enough stuff, but I can't take a step So I smart stopped and took a minute to think I need a little better spot, not under the sink With Smart Stop, I leave the stress at the door Cause it's the smarter way to store Smart Stop bucks the system Your first month's rent is just a buck Your next three months are half off Call 888-97-STORAGE and mention this station Goodbye clutter, hello floors Smart Stop, the smarter way to store Welcome back to this episode of Critical Mass Coast to Coast. I am your host, Rick Francy. As I said before the break, our second guest is Chris Molyneux. And Chris is the president of PA Bio. We're going to learn more about what it is his organization does right now. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rick. It's good to be here. Give us a background for what PA Bio is about, what you do, and how you help the Pennsylvania economy. Pennsylvania Bio is the statewide trade association for the life sciences in Pennsylvania. And I, I refer to the life sciences because although the name suggests a focus in biotechnology, uh, Pennsylvania Bio is much broader than that. We also represent pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, diagnostics, uh, academic research institutions, and the investment community, uh, as well as biotech. Uh, the, the, really, the, all the stakeholders in the life sciences in Pennsylvania uh, that, that represent the innovator industry, developing medical innovation and, and treatments for patients. Uh, the organization's been around a little more than 20 years, uh, and fundamentally we are a trade association and we focus our efforts on public policy advocacy, trying to create a business climate for life sciences companies to grow and thrive in Pennsylvania. Uh, and also we, we run programs that uh, provide opportunities for strategic connections between the different stakeholders. It's a really typical trade association activity. The, uh, so, it's important to note that the life sciences are a key economic driver, as you alluded to, uh, in Pennsylvania. There are more than 2,200 life sciences companies across the state of Pennsylvania, uh, about 80,000 people directly employed in life sciences companies, and if you consider the industries that support the life sciences, the various service providers and vendors, there's a multiplier effect of, of almost six jobs for every one job in the life sciences. So, so we're talking about almost a half a million people in Pennsylvania either directly or indirectly employed uh, by the life sciences industry. Uh, you know, the, the annual wages are about $6.8 billion dollars. Uh, and you know that, that's which is a clearly a big economic driver for the state. So, with all that's been going on relative to state budgets, federal budgets, focused tax issues, all the things that we we in the business community hear about and read about from an advocacy perspective, has that changed the challenge of getting attention of legislators and people that need to kind of? understand the goals of your industry and kind of the role that you play within it? 
You know, it, uh, that's a great question. A lot of what we try to talk about with our legislators is the value proposition that the life sciences industry actually provides to the healthcare system. And in fact, how the appropriate use of medicines and medical devices and diagnostics in particular can actually help reduce overall costs to the healthcare system. And that, you know, that, that matters for state budgets as much as it does for, for uh, the federal budget. So we're really pushing the importance of investment in innovation to continue to drive down costs through innovative technology. Now, it, you know, clearly there are budget challenges in every state. Pennsylvania uh, is certainly is not immune to that. But our focus really has been on pushing the value proposition and also looking to looking to create new companies. There are a lot of assets available in our research institutions, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, University of Pittsburgh. Those two schools in particular are among the top five in the country uh, in terms of grants, research grants from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, so we want to take advantage of that, the, the technology and the talent in those universities and form new companies, create jobs, and advance the innovation that comes with those technologies. So it's, it's a combination of public policy advocacy, creating a business climate, uh, but also looking for ways to accelerate company formation and job creation. It's interesting that you mentioned the University of Pittsburgh because my sense is that Pittsburgh is really a hotbed for biotech and bioscience type startup companies. There is an important relationship, especially as I understand it in your industry, between academics and entrepreneurs just because of the brain capital that's required to kind of get started in this industry, it, it requires a certain level of expertise and education to even have a hope at creating a company built around technology and innovation. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right, Rick. You know, if you look at the state of Pennsylvania, I mentioned uh, University of Pennsylvania and University of Pittsburgh. They're at opposite ends of the state, uh, and each of them sits in the, their respective technology belt, if you will. So at the southeastern end of Pennsylvania, where Penn, UPenn is located, uh, that, that's sort of the middle of what we call the biopharma corridor that runs from Boston really down to Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. And, and Philadelphia is right in the middle of that with University of Pennsylvania and Drexel and Temple and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, you know, a lot of great technology and talent, and Philadelphia is right in the middle of that belt on the western end of the state, uh, you've got what's what's now referred to as a, an emerging med tech belt that really runs from Toronto up in Canada through to Cleveland, and Pittsburgh sits in the middle of that belt. So Pennsylvania is almost the, the buckle between these two belts of technology and innovation and talent. Uh, you know, Carnegie Mellon, uh, Duquesne University, in addition to the University of Pittsburgh, there's a lot of talent on both ends of the state. You know, the other advantage, of course, on the eastern end of the state is Philadelphia sits right in the middle, uh, equidistant between the financial markets of New York and the regulatory agencies down in Washington, D.C., you know, each only about an hour and a half train ride away. Uh, so very geographically desirable as well. You were talking about the employment that this industry generates, and sounds like from the numbers as well that the earning potential of those involved in the industry is attractive. You know, it's it's good, solid earnings, a lot of degree professionals working in it, but also well-paying industries. I'm wondering, is your industry challenged to find 
younger, new workers to come into the workforce? Are the universities, is the, are high schools preparing people to be, are you getting the supply of the people that you need in Pennsylvania? Yeah, that, that's a, that's another great point, something that we, we're always mindful of. First, let me talk about the, the compensation or the average income. Uh, on average, someone in the, in the life sciences industry in Pennsylvania, annual earnings is, is about $80,000, but $88,000, I think, is the latest number. So, so roughly twice the average of all other industries in Pennsylvania or even nationally. But you're right. We need to look back down the pipeline and look at the talent that's emerging and ensure that the pipeline of talent continues to be rich. So we at Pennsylvania Bio actually launched a, an institute, a, a not-for-profit foundation last year called the Pennsylvania Life Sciences Institute that's going to be involved directly in workforce development and training. Uh, the initial focus of the institute will be on incumbent worker training because as the business model of the pharmaceutical industry relies more and more on universities and hospitals to do some of their clinical trial work, we want to be sure that the employee base in those hospitals and those universities can, can accept that outsourced work from the pharma companies. But, but as important, or probably more important for the long term, is to ensure that the graduate school level and the college level and even the high school level students are getting a, not only a scientific grounding in their education, but also enthusiasm and interest in, in pursuing the life sciences. So that's all part of a, a longer range. We've got to look out you know, 10 to 15 years to ensure that pipeline of talent is there to create the pipeline of technology of the future. Because as the industry grows, its need for talented people increases. So it, it's always, my experience is for uh, industries like yours, you always have to make sure you're feeding the funnel with not just replacing employees, but adding employees because the industry is growing and changing and, and the skill sets required are growing and changing. How much is technology a factor for your industry? Well, when you refer to technology, when we think of technology, we look across an entire range of different types of technologies, obviously IT, but you know, medical engineering degrees and engineering expertise is increasingly important. Well, what we're seeing in the industry, in the, the biopharma industry in particular, is a lot of the companies, the larger companies, names you've heard of, Pfizer, Merck, GlaxoSmithKline, these companies are outsourcing a lot of activity that used to be conducted in-house. So these are, these are global corporations that used to have every function under one roof to execute clinical trials and develop the next round of technologies and and develop the or discover the, the products of the future. A lot of that work, most of that work, in fact, is now being outsourced. So those jobs are being cut, and the opportunity for an enterprising scientist with some entrepreneurial spirit is to form his or her own company and become that outsourced service provider. So while technology is critically important and technical skills are incredibly important, what we're also finding now is that these scientists need to develop some, some business acumen because they, can, they have the opportunity to start their own organizations to support that new model of the biopharma industry. In Pennsylvania, over the last three and a half years, really going back to, to uh, the end of 2008, so a little more than three and a half, almost, almost four and a half years, we've seen more than 5,000 people 
lose their jobs from large pharma companies as that outsourcing trend has taken place. But in that same time frame, we've seen more than 300 new companies created, new R&D-based companies, and that's largely the result of scientists and other business leaders, business development experts coming out of those pharma companies, identifying a need that they can be a service provider back to the pharma companies and creating their own organizations. So it's, it's, it's a very dynamic environment right now, uh, but it also is highlighting the need for additional skill sets beyond the traditional you know, sort of focus in one specialty area. When that happens to an industry, I sort of think of pruning of trees and how that allows the light to hit the ground and the seedlings grow. And in many ways, I think it's a very organic, natural process. And admittedly, I think the government policy affects that a little bit, but I do think it creates this, as you said, perfect opportunity for entrepreneurs to not only replace the jobs that were lost by the larger companies, but to create entirely new professions and opportunities for people that wouldn't have happened in if the larger companies would have maintained everything in-house and kind of stayed in a steady state. So I, I find these times of change while they're very challenging to live through, it's sort of like economics, you know, the longer-term perspective, you see the value of it. If you're living in the moment, it may be challenging people, especially for those that lost their jobs to find their way again. But I do think over the long haul, it's a very healthy process for an industry to go through. I think it's absolutely right, and it ultimately does drive innovation because it creates competition. Uh, you know, creates competition for the investment dollars, certainly creates competition in the marketplace for, for product development. Uh, so at the end of the day, if you're getting a more innovative product as a result of this to serve patients, that's that's the ultimate end beneficiary. That's who, who our industry seeks to serve is, is patients. If this competition and this new model drives advanced innovation, uh, really, really the uh, the patient serves the benefit. Yeah, because entrepreneurs who see a need can move much more quickly, in my experience on average, than large corporations who have this in their belly somewhere, but getting it through their bureaucracy and their business cycles sometimes really slows down the innovation, forcing it out into the fringes to entrepreneurs who have to kind of survive creates focus that I do think generates a certain amount of energy in an industry that reaps tremendous rewards, but it takes you know three to five years later to really start to see how those new businesses catch hold. Sure. And the, the, the other important point to keep in sight is how this change, this evolution of biopharma's industry, uh, has also changed the way universities and, and other research institutions work. Uh, research, for research's sake, is no longer good enough. The applicability of a technology is now much more important to a, an R&D-based R &D university. Uh, translational medicine and then the commercialization of technologies now, you know, front and center on the minds of, of uh, university administrators, even even universities that have you know decades or centuries of, of history of being advanced in research, but not necessarily commercializing. Now they have to get into that game as well uh, to feed the pipeline of the of the large pharma industry. If someone would more about your organization, how do they find you, Chris? Pennsylvania Bio is easily found at, at www.pennsylvaniabio.org or pabio.org. Either website address works. That's pabio.org. 
Well, I want to thank Ken Wax again for bringing you to our attention, having you as a guest on the program. Interesting work you're doing, interesting industry. I want to thank you for making the time to be a guest here today on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. All right, thanks so much, Rick. Good luck with everything. Goodbye, Chris. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take our second commercial break here on Coast to Coast Show today. When we come back, our third guest will be lined up and ready to go. So we'll be right back after we spend a few minutes with our sponsors. My company made the switch to Commerce National Bank about six months ago. Our relationship officer was there every step of the way to make the transition as seamless as possible. We had an early hiccup with a deposit scanner, but they dropped everything and drove right to our offices to help. We couldn't feel better about our decision to switch. Instead of calling an 800 number and navigating through automated menus, now I call my Commerce National Bank relationship officer directly for any questions we have. Just knowing that they're so easily accessible and willing to help really puts me at ease. They offer the same technology as the big banks, but deliver it with superior service and training. They're also rated a full five stars by Bauer Financial. So if your organization is a small or medium-sized business in Orange County, you should make the switch too. Call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863 or visit them online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank, and they'll handle the rest. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Math for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plan and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. Welcome back to this episode of Critical Mass Coast to Coast. I am your host, Rick Franzi. You know, this show is one in a series of Critical Mass radio shows. On Tuesday, we bring you interviews with California business leaders on our flagship show, Critical Mass Radio Show. That show has been on the air for over four years now and can be heard at 4 p.m., on Select Wednesdays, we air a show featuring Orange County nonprofit organizations and their leaders. All of our shows can be heard live here on Internet Radio Station OCTalkRadio.net, or they can be rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcasting services. All our shows can be found as well on our website, which is criticalmassforbusiness.com. Okay, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our third guest, David Glusman, who is partner in charge of the Philadelphia region for Marcom. David, welcome to Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Thank you, Rick. It's good to be here. So tell us about your firm. Well, Markham is a nationally based uh, CPA firm with a variety of services. We're full service, accounting, auditing, tax work, litigation support, business valuation, forensic accounting. We do it all. And we have offices ranging from 
Orange County, California at the southwest corner, up to Boston, Massachusetts in the northeast, and a couple in China. So how did you ascend to the position of partner in charge? Everybody else turned the other way, and I became it. Um, we, we, we merged a, a regional firm in the Philadelphia area into Markham about three and a half years ago. And I was the managing partner of that firm, and I helped lead the, the transition. And I became the partner in charge of the Philadelphia region and part of the firm's executive committee when that amalgamation occurred. What's it like coming from a smaller organization to a larger organization? Well, it, it is interesting because the transition for us was very similar to what we do uh, with many of our clients. It was sort of a, an interesting transition because we went from being one office with 13 or so partners who uh, dealt internally, and we had to have all of our own resources. And the exchange for becoming part of Markham was a couple things. First of all, we had a great breadth of service capability and other people to draw from as needed. We also have specialties here in Philadelphia that other offices use. The other side was that we gave up a little bit of independence here in exchange for uh, a tremendous support service that's, uh, that's now nationally based. When we joined, we didn't have the New England region and we didn't have the California region. Those have been added in the last uh, three years. So is Markham on an acquisition phase in their growth? Is that part of how they're doing it, organic as well as acquisition? Uh, that, that's a good way to put it because we are organically growing and we're also doing a couple of different kinds of merger activity. We've had individual practitioners who've come into uh, our individual offices. We've also had smaller mergers as we've grown. For instance, if someone were to look at our webpage, you'd see that we merged in a small firm into our Boston office as of the 1st of February. So we've had a number of those across the country, and uh, we're actually looking for something like that here in Philadelphia now. Uh, do you sense that the economy is on the rebound? Well, we look at it two ways. We look at our own business, and because we're a CPA firm, we sort of have an interesting pulse, or at least we think we have an interesting pulse on our clients' businesses and what that means. Our business has been rebounding a little bit. We actually never went down after 08. We just didn't go up. But lately, our business is up. We're getting new client inquiries. And probably more important, many of our clients are starting to see more stability in their ordering, more stability in their employment. And while I don't want to go too far out on a limb, we're at least optimistic that what some of the national statistics are showing is borne out with the Markham client base, that our clients are growing a little bit. They're getting a little more profitable. Uh, they're not quite as concerned looking forward. They're making slightly more investment both in people and in, in uh, technology. And technology is a big part of how many of our clients are growing. Thank you for that. I'm trying to more consistently ask people who I think might have a broader perspective about what they're seeing with the economy and who better than a CPA firm to be able to help us the way you did. So thank you for sharing that. I understand from Ken Max, our Renaissance Executive Forum's business partner in Philadelphia, that you have experience in fraud-related work. And I'm wondering... It's always a topic that I find interesting because of its prevalence for small and mid-market companies. I'm wondering if you might be able to discuss what businesses can do to, from your perspective, maybe minimize the incidence and opportunity for fraud in their firms. Well, in addition to, to running uh, this office, the majority of my work is in forensic accounting and litigation support. So we do find some of the worst things that are going on. Sort of the answer to your question is that 
there are several basic issues that especially small and medium-sized businesses can attend to to minimize the likelihood of fraud occurring, and if it occurs, to find it faster. One of the most frustrating things for a business owner or an accountant is to realize at some point that a fraud has been going on for many, many months or even years. The thought process that accountants use, we refer to generally as internal controls, where no one individual should have the ability to manipulate either money or the books alone. One of the hardest things for a criminal to accomplish is to go and commit a fraud with someone else. No one wants to trust someone else with their own illegal activities. More important is most of us in the business community are honest. Most of our employees are honest. So if one employee sees another employee committing a dishonest act, in most instances, they'll take care of it by reporting it, or in some cases, simply not processing it. So in small businesses, one of the problems that occurs is there's not enough people in some businesses for checks and balances. And in others, the owners or the supervisors feel like they're too busy to actually look at the detail. And it goes down to silly things from our perspective. We know of circumstances where fraud was committed. The bank statements with the either the canceled checks or more recently, the images of the checks came back to the company. Clearly forged checks, checks made out to fictitious vendors, and they came right back to the person who committed the fraud. No business owner opens them, no manager opens them, no accountant opens them, and that becomes one of those circumstances where the opportunity is there. The individual who's writing these checks realizes at a point in time, nobody's looking over my shoulder, nobody's checking me, and they usually start small. It may be because husband, wife, mom, or dad is very sick and there's medical bills and I need $1,000 and I write a check to ABC Carpet Company even though there is no such place and I deposit that to my personal account. When the bank statement comes back and nobody notices, A, I don't have to pay it back because I really meant to and B, the next month I write a $2,000 check to ABC Carpet and I might do that every month because nobody's looking. That's sort of the short version if there is one to your to your right. question. I could literally give a one or two hour lecture just on your question. And I've done that many times. It sounds boring, you know, employee fraud, internal controls, and it is a dry subject, except when you start to hear the real world stories of what employees dream up to steal money from their employers. That's when it gets so fascinating how creative these people are. And you're exactly right. I think in most times they start small and they get bolder as time goes on, either because they aren't being challenged by it or they become really used to that alternate income and it's hard for them to, to stop doing what they started doing. Right. And the other thing that occurs is outside pressures. And it can be anything from as simple as the extra hospital bills that somebody feels. Um, in one circumstance, we uh, were brought in. There had been an ongoing low-level fraud, and unbeknownst to this company, their CEO had a criminal background that was missed when he was hired, and he had restitution that he was required to make to his former victim. And his parole officer found out that he was lying to the parole officer about his income and his assets, 
and she, to use the parlance, she put the squeeze on him and required him to make full restitution in 30 days. And the only way he could come up with that half a million dollars that was still remaining was to steal it from his present company. And in fact, that did occur over a holiday weekend. Come Tuesday after the holiday, the money is missing from the account. We were called over the weekend when the first notice came up, interviewed him, so to speak, as he came into the office on Tuesday morning. We had guards there to watch the car, to take care of us in case he decided to get violent. And by the end of a two or three hour interview, we actually had a confession on almost the entire million two, million three in, in fraud that occurred. So he was creative at some levels. He did inadvertently uh, get other people to conspire with him. The controller had some financial problems. He helped the controller out. Then the controller wasn't as careful about oversight of his expense accounts. Things like that happen, and it really is amazing. Sometimes the, the criminals are very creative. Other times, they're really not that creative, but the company is so lax in what they do in oversight that it's allowed to continue and grow. We actually did a seminar here last year, and we titled it, Are Your Employees Stealing From You? Because in point in fact, it doesn't have to be cash. It can be equipment. If you have a warehouse, depending on the products that you deal with, there's a lot of value, material, metals. There's just tons of places where people can take things that belong to you. And then there you're, quote, unquote, sometimes your most trusted and loyal long-term employees are the ones who get away with the most of it. So, And that includes the ones who don't go on vacation. <laughs> it, it, That's another one, red flag when they never go on vacation. Telltale signs. If you have somebody in any type of accounting or financial position who never goes on vacation, or when they do take a brief vacation, nobody fills in for them. I'm sure there are many dedicated people out there, some of them listening to the show, who say, wait a minute, I worked 52 weeks last year because my boss didn't let me take any time off. And that may be true, and they may be completely honest. But I will tell you the number of times that I've seen a fraud, and when I go in, I find out, number one, they didn't take a vacation, or when they did, their work piles up on their desk, and they don't allow or ask anyone to fill in. The company doesn't have a backup for them, and that the reason for that is that way they can continue to open the bank statements when they come. They can continue to intercept mail if it comes addressed in some inappropriate way. It's a telltale sign. Not always the case, but if I see that happening, my antenna go up. Well, David, how does someone find you guys online? Um, well, finding us online hopefully is fairly easy. Obviously, if you type in markmllp.com, you will get our website. In most cases, if someone types in even something like Forensic Accountant Philadelphia, we hope that our website is active enough and, and properly labeled. Uh, we are sometimes found that way. But most of the time, we're found by referral from clients, lawyers, bankers, and others who dealt with or with whom we've shared clients. It, it is interesting in public accounting, we do some advertising and we do public relations to make sure that our name is out there. But the vast majority of our clients, it's probably well in excess of 80%, maybe 90, come from referrals either from existing satisfied clients um, or their professionals where a need arises. If someone either suspects a fraud, use your earlier example, or has an accounting need that isn't being met, a tax problem that they can't currently solve with their, their current professional, 
They'll often ask their lawyer or their banker or their golfing buddy who has another business, who's helping you? And hopefully our clients or those lawyers will say, um, you know, I know a couple of people over at Markham in the Philadelphia office or the Irvine, Irvine, California office or San Diego. They're really helpful. So we have to keep our reputation up for, for that reason, and that's how you satisfy clients. Well, I appreciate you sharing not only your personal story and professional story, but giving a little bit about what you know relative to employee fraud. I'm glad that uh, Ken had suggested that we delve into that. You had a lot of good experience and answers there. I appreciate you being on the program today. Thanks for being a friend of the program, and welcome to our national community here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and I'll continue listening in on, uh, on the other leaders that you have. Thank you, sir. All right, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Critical Mass Coast to Coast, and this edition is brought to you by Commerce National Bank, Succession Strategies, Smart Stop Cell Storage, and Smart Business Magazine. Also, this show is produced in conjunction with Renaissance Executive Forums, and if you want to learn more about Renaissance, find their website, executiveforums, F-O-R-U-M-S dot com, the Producer for today's show is Rachel Franzi. Our guest coordinator is Kathleen Shepard. Our marketing communications manager is Kelly Faltis. Our engineer is none other than Paul Roberts. And I'm your host, Rick Franzi, saying until the next time we have a chance to talk, here's hoping that all of your decisions move your business in a positive direction. You've been listening to Critical Mass, coast to coast, right here on Orange County's only community radio station, OCTalkRadio.net.